This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks to funding from the British Podcast Awards Fund and Welcome Trust, I'm embarking on a series of conversations under the banner Theory in the Flesh. I borrow the term Theory in the Flesh from and with gratitude to our feminist and QTPOC elders to draw attention to the health inequalities and disparities experienced by queer black people in the UK. The conversations convened under Theory in the Flesh explore sexual racism, masculinity, black women in the health services, medical research and therapy, and should hopefully, if I've done my job, provide a window into just some of the many considerations we have to make as queer black people in the UK about our health. I really hope you all enjoy these conversations. Our livelihood, our health, our thriving is of the utmost importance to me, and a great deal of care, thought, and research has gone into these conversations. It would be so great to hear from you after listening to these conversations. You can reach me on busybeingblackpod at gmail.com. Again, thank you to the British Podcast Awards Fund and Welcome Trust. It's not often that we have the funding, the time, and the space to explore issues that are so important to our lives. I've encountered in my interview research people who face sexual racism. Many of them can feel that actually that they're not attractive, that they're just not attractive to other people, that there's something flawed about them, mm-hmm. that, that their ethnicity is something that is a flaw rather than something to be celebrated and to be proud of. That can lead them to sometimes feel less confident about negotiating the type of sex they're going to have and whether or not they're going to use a condom with a partner who may insist on a particular sexual behavior or insist on not using a condom. And they they described in interviews, you know, the situation of being told by a partner who they really wanted to have, they wanted to have sex with this person, they felt that that that, that person was doing them a favor by having sex with them because of this internalized stigma. And they resorted to behaviors that they didn't really want to engage in, they didn't really want to have condomless sex, but they actually did that because they didn't have the confidence to negotiate their condom use. Much is researched, written and said about sexual racism in our communities. No blacks, no fats, no femmes, no Asians are all terms any of us who've used dating apps have seen. And for those of us caught in the racist, fat and femphobic crosshairs, we feel this pain acutely. But my guest today, Professor Rusi Jospel, is finding that what has become an ostensibly casual digital discrimination has real-world implications in the lives of those that discrimination impacts. Professor Rusi Jospel began his research career trying to understand how British Pakistani Muslim men reconcile their religion and their sexuality. And he's since gone on to lead the way in the UK on research specific to the lives of LGB, black and minority ethnic people. Professor Jaspel is truly unmatched, both in the scope of his research and the depth of his understanding of what it means to live and oftentimes be invisible as queer people of color in Britain. Among much else, his research finds that black and minority ethnic men who have sex with men experience rejection from those they love, respect, or admire, then enter into a gay scene that does not recognize or validate their lived experience, which makes them more prone to depression. That depression, in turn, makes those men more vulnerable to sexual risk-taking like chemsex and condomless sex. This conversation is big and rich and eye-opening. It adds some much-needed context and texture to the conversations we have about the importance of coming out in our communities. Namely, that we have to create around queer people the environments, the societies, and the cultures that accept them for who they are. A couple of quick notes before we get into the conversation. Here in the UK, black people and other non-white people are lumped together under the pithy identifier BAME, BAME, Black and Minority Ethnic. It's a phrase of great contention for many of us. And while I'm reluctant in my own personal language to use this identifier, 
For the purposes of this conversation, BAME is the identifier du jour. Professor Jaspel also explains that his research does not include our trans siblings specifically as he wants to make a clear delineation in his research between sexual orientation and gender identity. He puts forward that our trans siblings deserve their own specific and targeted research. Finally, this conversation was recorded in February 2020 before the COVID-19 lockdown. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Professor Rusi Jaspel. Rusi, I'm so thrilled that you're here. Um, I've been, you know, we've we've we know each other, yes. you know, through through work that we've done, um, and I've always admired you because, as far as I know, um, aside from just being an excellent person, as far as I know, you are really one of the only people who's leading research in a very in a very important area, and so I've when I don't think I really appreciated the the scale and the scope of the work that you've been leading here. And so, and which we'll talk about in the show. Sure. And I'm just, so thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here and to be able to talk to you a bit more about the work that I do and the issues that really matter to us both actually. So yeah. thank you. So Professor Rusi Jaspal, am I saying that right? Yes, you yes. are. <laughs> um, how would you, you're in between jobs at the moment. That's right. Tell, yes. me, tell me what you're working on or what this transition moment in your life is like. Sure. So um, for the last uh, two years, I've been the pro-vice-chancellor for research at De Montfort University. That means that I'm um, really um, a part of the senior management team and looking after the research that the university produces. Um, alongside that, however, I've been doing my own research and a lot of it. And I've reached a point where actually I I'd like to now focus on my own research into the issues that really matter to me. So I've taken the decision to return to being a professor who teaches and who focuses on research at Nottingham Trent University. So um, this is, uh, it's been a difficult decision because I've been at De Montfort University for seven years of my life, wow. long time. I've, I've forged an identity there. I've built my career there. Um, but I think change can be a really positive thing. It's good to, to have new experiences and to face new challenges um, and to meet new people. So that's mm. one of the things I'm really looking forward to at my new institution where I begin in April. How do you handle change? If you had to like look back on your life and then think about this moment right now, how do you think you handle change? Change is so inevitable. It's so central to the human experience. We all go through changes, and change comes in so many different forms. I mean, at, the, at a very basic level, something that, that affects us all is we grow older. So change is a really, really central thing. But I think as human beings, we tend to resist change a little bit mm. on the whole, or we really look for a theory that explains change because we need that certainty. So change can be, can be quite threatening, but I think if you embrace change, which is so inevitable, uh, it can also be really rewarding. It can mm. bring some fantastic things to life. Well, change can often feel chaotic yeah. or unexpected. Mm. It can. And um, I think in situations like that, what's really important is that we have an element of support around us. Mm. And we refer to that in psychology as social support. But essentially what that boils down to is having others to speak to and um, being able to discuss that change with other people and really being able to appreciate what that change really represents. Um, and dispelling any myths that you may associate with that change and the kind of fears that you may append to that change. But change, I think, should be embraced. I'm thinking about the ways like this it's stability and support, right? Mm. And how, as people who live these kind of intersectional identities and who have these kind of very, what can feel like very overwhelming lived experiences, how sometimes maybe this resistance to change is because we crave stability so much, right? Because I guess there's change, which is, as you've said, which is the natural process of getting older, life moves on, you'll change jobs. Um, but I mean, even now, we're in a moment of great transition and, transition and change. If we think about leaving the EU, if we think about the way black and brown people are treated in this country. Mm. So I guess the question I want to ask is like, as a psychologist, what advice would you give to people who might be feeling the pressure in this moment, right? Who might be feeling a bit of this mm. chaotic energy? Yeah. Well, I, I, what I would say in, in response to that is really it depends on the kind of change that, that one's experiencing. Mm. I mean, and we've talked about lots of different forms of change. Um, certainly the populations that I look at are facing some changes that can really be 
interpreted as being threatening. So, for example, coming out. Um, coming out can yield some very uncertain outcomes. Um, it can change the nature of your relationships with other people. It can um, expose you to prejudice that you may not have been exposed to previously. Um, it can make you view yourself differently as well because of what other people may say or think about you. And I think in circumstances like that, what's really important is that we um, create a kind of environment where coming out is facilitated, where it's made easier, where there's that support that's available. Um, I think people also need to prepare themselves psychologically for the consequences of their actions. So when you come out, you know, um, you, you will probably face some reactions that are really great and some reactions that are not so great. And I think it's really important to be able to celebrate those really positive reactions and to be inspired by those positive reactions, but also to be able to cope and to deal with the negative reactions because that's so important for moving forward in life. Um, but of course, that kind of a change is really different from other kinds of change, like Brexit that you just mentioned, mm. you know, and, um, uh, and, and how that really kind of represents a change in, a, in many people's sense of identity. People who've really felt very European are suddenly feeling that they have that crucial identity taken away from them. On the other side, people who really feel that their Britishness was affected by their European Union membership are probably mm. feeling that their Britishness is more bolstered by this. So I think you know, change affects people in very different ways, depending on who they are, what support they have available to them. As you've listened to on the show, I'm always trying to complicate the narrative around coming out. Mm. I came out when I was 16. I've never looked back. Um, I spoke with Shamir Sani, who first began complicating this coming out narrative for me. And as I've had more and more conversations, I've been trying to understand just to provide more nuance and texture around coming out. You know, if you don't come out for whatever reason, that that can be OK, too. Mm -hmm. um, if you decide to come out and, you know, share who you are with the world. Um, then hopefully you can you can do that too. And I think in this report, which is re research, which is called a structural equation model for predicting depressive symptomatology in Black, Asian, and minority ethnic, gay, lesbian, and bisexual people in the UK, I was surprised to encounter outness as one of the factors. Yes. Yes. Okay. So a structural equation model for predicting depressive symptomatology. Can you say that? For sure, us. sure, absolutely. <laughs> so essentially what I've done in this, um, in, in this study is to build a model that helps us to understand um, why some groups may be at greater risk of depression and poor mental health outcomes like psychological distress and suicidal ideation, you know, um, contemplating suicide, etc. Um, why they may be at greater risk than other people. And we can create those models when we have a large data set um, where we have lots of data from people who've been completing a series of, um, of of scales on a questionnaire. And I did this study because I know from my own lived experience as a, um, as a, as a, as a gay man of South Asian origin, as a BAME gay man, um, that it can be really challenging. It can be really challenging to occupy the spaces of Britishness, of your sexual Id identity, as well as your ethnic identity. It can be very challenging. And um, what I was seeing around me was that people were often feeling um, not great about themselves. They, they had low levels of self-esteem because they felt rejected, because they had to conceal who they were from other people. And what I wanted to look at was whether this low self-esteem can later culminate in poor mental health outcomes. Because I think if you face self-esteem, lose the self-esteem for a long period of time, and you internalize that low self-esteem, it becomes central to who you are, it becomes so entrenched in the way you think, mm. it can really become something much graver than just low self-esteem. It can actually become, I think, a form of depression and the other sorts of negative outcomes that I've talked about. So the study is all about looking into that. And I think we found some really fascinating things. No, you really did. I, <laughs> I was highlighting Wildly. So according to Stonewall in 2012, there are approximately 400,000 BAME LGB people in the UK, which represents a significant proportion of the UK's LGB population of approximately 1.1 million. Why in this report are there no trans people? Well, it's, it's quite a difficult decision, I think, for a researcher to decide who to focus on in, um, in research. And um, 
I think, first of all, I wanted to say something really meaningful on the about sexual orientation. I think uh, right. transness is, 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 is quite different from, yes. um, from that experience. There are certainly some overlaps, but there are also some, some significant differences. And I think it's really important that we explore the experiences of trans people so that they really have a voice and mm. that they also, um, that their, their experiences come through very clearly because it's quite clear that often the voices of some groups within the LGBTQ um, category, broad category, are sometimes obscured. And that's mm. also the case, for example, for, for people who are bisexual. Often we, 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 we don't say enough about the experiences, the unique experiences of bisexual people. So what I've tried to do is to say as much as I possibly can about um, what is already a very diverse community. Mm. Why don't you tell me about the findings that were that were significant or important to you yeah. a, a, over the course of this research? Sure. So uh, just to say, to, to begin with, I, I've been involved in this line of research for um, for over ten years, and I actually started my research career focusing on how British Pakistani Muslim gay men reconcile their religion and their sexual orientation, and I did that because I I realized that it was very challenging for many people who had a strong Islamic religious faith on the one hand and who also identified as being gay. They wanted to retain their religious identity on the one hand. That was really important to them. Uh, but on the other hand, they found that quite difficult to reconcile with their sexual identity. Now, why did they find that difficult? It was not because there's something inherent about their religion that says that you can't be gay. There's nothing inherent about being gay that says you can't be of religious faith. It's actually what people around us say to us and the kinds of messages that we internalize because of what people around us are telling us. Mm. So many of the people that I interviewed talk, talked about going to the mosque and being told by spiritual leaders that it was impossible for a Muslim to be gay. Many of them talked also about <clears throat> being on the gay scene and being told by other gay men that it's impossible to be a Muslim and to be gay, that you're somehow a traitor to, um, you know, to, to our cause if you are a religious faith. And when you're told that by lots of people, people who matter to you over a prolonged period of time, you may end up internalizing that belief. And that was the case for many of the people whom I interviewed. And they faced some really quite severe um, distress as a result of that. Um, they believed it was completely impossible to be both of those things simultaneously. And was that your experience? Is that what led you into this research from a personal perspective? Well, actually, it wasn't my personal experience because um, I, um, my parents are not... Uh, particularly religious, um, the, the, their cultural identity matters to them, um, and I think that my parents had also they'd ha they'd had many friends who were LGB, also they they didn't suspect that I was gay when I came out, or at least that's what my mother told me, but um, they um, I think they were very familiar with diversity, and therefore I think I had a much more favorable experience than many of my friends who are also um, of ethnic minority background had, and many of the people whom I've studied. Um, but it was, of course, a challenge because we are part of a community, mm -hmm. and we are a collectivist community as well, where maybe some of my relatives may not share the same worldview as my parents did. Thank well, thankfully, my parents had that worldview, but many of my relatives did not. And I also had to bear in mind that although my parents were very accepting of who I was, they too are part of a community mm -hmm. and they too are concerned about what their relatives and, and other people within their community think about them and think about their children. These are all quite inescapable cultural norms and um, aspects of our culture because they're so central to who we are. So I think my experience was a little bit different because religion wasn't very central to my coming out experience or even to my own identity currently. Um, but I certainly had a lot of shared lived experience with the people whom I interviewed because we share a culture. Mm -hmm. I could empathize with them when they were talking about the experience they experiences they had had. They saw me as an insider when I listened to their experiences because I could relate to them in a way that perhaps other people of other back backgrounds may find a little bit more difficult. Of course, interesting. I was just actually speaking to someone the other day about this cultural literacy mm. um, or fluency <laughs> is probably a better way to describe it, right? That um, when we go into clinical environments and either as black people or as South Asian people, knowing that there's someone who might understand the cultures we originate in can help us open up in, in new ways. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think it can really be a very um, support-inducing. It can make people feel that they have access to... Um, to someone who's going to get their experience, they're mm. going to understand this. But I must also point out that it, it's quite complex because 
I've also been in situations where um, people haven't wanted haven't wanted to be interviewed by, by me uh, to be interviewed by me because they're afraid of um, me knowing somebody within their community and um, this somehow right. you know that that's sort of uh, leading to poor to negative outcomes for them um, I think some people are also they, they find it uneasy because they've never actually been able to share their experience of their sexuality for example with someone who shares their ethnic identity because they've so immersed themselves in um, uh, other communities because they're afraid of what their own community will think of them, yeah. that they find it difficult to even find the language to talk about their sexual sexuality with somebody who shares their ethnic identity. So it can be really complex. Identity is a really fuzzy, complex thing. Yeah. Let's actually, let's keep on this research that you started, you know, 10 years ago in, sure. in, in these Muslim communities. What was most surprising to you then, right? Because I imagine each time you embark on a new bit of research, there there is an education that you also go through. You'll walk in with your assumptions or what you think. Um, I mean, I don't know how research works. So I don't know if you're supposed to try to be like not have any assumptions. Yeah, but yeah. what was kind of that moment when you were doing this research that you were like, oh, fuck. Mm. <laughs> Let me just address that point about, I think, the role of the researcher, first of all, okay. in relation to the research. And then I'll, I'll address your question more directly. Um, as scientists, because we're scientists as psychologists, we, we have this kind of belief that we're, we're doing our research objectively, that we've got nothing to do with our research, that we can kind of observe our research and we'll get findings that are untainted, that they're objective. But the reality is very different from that because of everything that I've just been, we've just been talking about, the fact that I am very much part of the community as well. I'm, I'm very much part of that experience as well. So when I'm discussing issues like ethnicity and religion, a lot of what's being discussed, I'll, I'll give them very affirmative nods, understanding the experience. And I'm, I become part of that research and it's difficult for me to to be separate from it in a way that scientists like to be when they're perhaps looking at biology or, or physics right, or something right, else, yeah. you know? <laughs> uh, so I think that's, that's one thing that's really important to bear in mind. Um, in terms of the most... Well, and did you have to get your... So did you go into it knowing that or did you learn about that, right? That you would inevitably be bringing yourself into this and that maybe it was beneficial that you were able to? Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting point because I remember many people around me saying, "Well, Rusi, you can't possibly um, research this because you're just so close to this community. You're so <laughs> this is this is your life. I mean, what if you face distress because of the findings that your research yields, and what if it makes you think about yourself in a different way?" So I think a lot of people around me thought that it might be a little bit um, uh, unhealthy in a way, dare I say, to do research in this area. But I actually found it really therapeutic as well because you learn so much about yourself. And you, I think that's a great piece of research. If not only do you learn about a population that you're researching, but you learn about yourself, it becomes very self-reflexive. And it makes you consider things in a way that you hadn't necessarily considered them previously. Okay, and so what was that moment for you when yeah. you were in the trenches and you were like, oh my God. Well, I think for me, it was... Um, there was a moment where my assumptions about coming out were really challenged, radically challenged, and I'll explain how. Because my own coming out experience was very favorable, because I think we live in a context where coming out is presented as a really great thing to do, because it is a great thing to do in many respects, I had internalized this belief, and I found myself looking for ways in which I could make coming out a reality for people that I was interviewing. And I interviewed some people who really faced some massive challenges and they risked everything if they were to come out. They risked the, the, the um, integrity of their family staying together. They risked physical violence from family members, from members of their own community, honor-based violence in a very small number of cases, but that certainly existed within the community. And it made me realize that actually, if we're gonna have this expectation that people should come out, if there's going to be stigma appended to people who don't come out, and there is very much stigma appended to people who don't come out on the gay scene, I find, um, then we've got to really understand the context of the, in which people are coming out. We've got to understand how difficult this is actually is for them. We shouldn't be pressurizing people to come out before they feel ready to come out themselves. And I feel that there is an implicit pressure on people to come out uh, at the drop of a hat because of the way in which this is represented in the media. Mm. If somebody famous comes out, this is often um, celebrated and it's presented as a very positive step and everything that preceded that moment is often represented as being inauthentic. Um, and 
whilst I must reiterate, it's really important to support people to come out. I think it, it yields really great things. We've got to understand that people have different levels of readiness. Yeah, and because I think that this desire or this, this narrative which is so adamantly come out, come out, come out, as, as we hear it here in England and, and elsewhere in the West, I think locates the, it puts all of the pressure on the individual. It suggests that whatever the barrier in front of the individual is down to the individual instead yes. of the societal implications <coughs> or the cultural implications for coming out. Yeah. It suggests, I think it obscures, to use the word that you used earlier, it obscures like what the actual barriers are to people coming out. It does, it really does. And I think you're absolutely right that people are often blamed um, they're, they're presented as being inauthentic, um, deniers, mm, or, or deceitful. As, deceitful, exactly. Or, or somehow, or even ridiculous, they're slightly ridiculed. I've, I've heard people talk about their experience of um, prejudice because they are of religious faith, being told, well, how on earth can you believe in a religion that's homophobic? And I think these, these, this can be really quite detrimental for a person's well-being because, as I said, we are not just a single identity. I am many things simultaneously. You are many things simultaneously. I'm, I'm a gay man who's of South Asian origin. I'm British. You know, the list goes on. And all of those identities matter to me. And I think when we just consider someone through one prism, through one lens, it almost denies all of those other really important mm. parts of their identity. Being Muslim is important for many Muslims. Being Hindu is important for many Hindus. Being Christian is important for many Christians. Being an atheist is important for many atheists. What we've really got to do is to have a context where people can be who they really want to be and that they're not judged for, for being who they are and who they want to be. Mm. Yeah. In this research that uh, around the depressive symptomatology, um, talk to me about the, the significance of outness. One of the views that's been quite prevalent around Mental, poor mental health has been that there's something it's something that can be dealt with through a biomedical kind of approach by by you know it can be treated um, biomedically and one of the things I wanted to show in this paper was that often the reasons why people face poor mental health not exclusively so but often in many cases are quite social in, in nature there are social reasons why people can start to experience what I call depressive symptomatology in this, in this paper, depression. We found in our model that BAME, LGB people, BAME, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, were less likely to be out than their white British counterparts. They were less likely to be out because they were more likely to face rejection from family members. They were more likely to face stigma. So it makes perfect sense. If you face stigma and you face rejection, a first-line coping strategy can be not to tell anybody about your identity because if you hide who you are, you're not going to be rejected. You're not going to be stigmatized. So because of that stigma, people are hiding who they are. Because they're hiding who they are, they feel less authentic in many cases. They, they go to great lengths to present themselves in a way that won't reveal who they truly are. So to present themselves as heterosexual to avoid situations where they may be outed, to avoid people, avoid associating with people who may lead to them being outed. This leads to a cycle of inauthenticity. It leads to a cycle of internalized shame and stigma because you think, hey, I'm hiding this because this is something to be ashamed of. And it also deprives you of any support because if you are so busy in, um, remaining in the closet and trying to safeguard your, your, your secrecy, you're not going to get support from other gay people, other lesbian people, other bi people, other sexual minorities. You're not going to get support from allies, mm. straight allies who, who are going to say, you know, it's fine to be a, minor, a sexual minority yeah, and who yeah. you are. You're going to be alone in your, with your internalized stigma. I believe that's the reason why the people that we have who've completed my survey are showing depressive symptomatology because of that high proclivity that tendency to stay in the closet and not to come out and not to go out and find that social support that's so readily available in many cases but what what, what begins is ostensibly a protective measure 
right? Because as you said earlier, of course, you look around you, you see the stigma, you see the rejection that you hear the homophobia and you embark on this protective measure, which is like, I'm going to keep this part of me concealed. Um, I think your research is suggesting that metastasizes. It has negative impacts. Yes. And that isn't, I think it's a great metaphor to use in this in this context, because it is actually something that just spreads and it leads to much worse outcomes than may have originally been there in the first place. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why throughout all of my work, I've always argued that we can, as psychologists, we can try to help and support people at an individual level. But what we really need is large scale social change. We need to create context where people can feel comfortable coming out, where they can feel comfortable telling their parents who they are, and where they can feel comfortable about the relationships that they have and who they are in the world. And they can only really do this if the, the identities and the groups that matter to them, like their religion, like their cultural groups, like their the gay scene, change in a way that accepts them and has more favorable attitudes. Mm. And as we know, across all three of those contexts and many other contexts, um, BAME, uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people face a lot of prejudice. Yes. Racism, homophobia, religious um, prejudice, all sorts of prejudices. Mm. Exclusion from being British. And that can come, become very, very distressing for an individual who essentially has every door closed to them. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I've just been thinking of actually sexual racism. Yeah. And, and how, like, so I, I, let me see if I can finish this thought. So basically this connection between the bounds of Britishness and the sexual racism, because they would be connected, right? But in so much as we may feel the need in these sexual environments to perform the version of us that is being demanded of us, mm. right? I so there would be a connection there too. I think, I think you're right about that, yes. Um, what, what I will say about the... About, about the gay scene or, or um, LGBT communities or, or whatever we want to call that space, um, it can sometimes be a difficult space for many people who don't necessarily um, fit the prototype, if you like, or the model that's kind of deemed to be acceptable within that context. Mm. And we can talk about that in terms of race and ethnicity. We can talk about it in terms of body image. We can talk about it in terms of HIV status. There are so many different um, barriers to people really deriving feelings of acceptance and inclusion within what should be an accepting and an inclusive space. Mm. And I think many people really decide to engage with other people who are sexual minorities to frequent that space, to occupy that space, anticipating support, anticipating acceptance. But what they often find is hostility mm. and rejection. And that can have really, really terrible outcomes for a person's well-being because they can think, hang on, I'm not accepted anywhere. I'm rejected everywhere I turn to. Who who loves me? Who wants me? Yeah. That can be a very painful moment for people. This then links into your other piece of research, one of many, uh, a minority within a minority, identity and sexual health in black and minority ethnic men who have sex with men in the UK, which, I mean, I think this is what we're talking about, right? That... Does the depressive does the depression result in riskier sexual behaviors? Is that what you're finding? Absolutely. This is okay. exactly what I've been finding for the last ten years, and it was just a couple of years ago, actually, that I um, put together a model to try to predict when sexual risk taking will occur, the conditions under which it will occur, and um, of course, the the intention there is to try to intervene before that risk taking occurs and before a, a poor outcome occurs. Explain that to me. So, sure. coming up with a model to predict when sexual risk taking will occur. Yeah, sure, sure. It all boils down so cool. to yeah, yeah it, it all boils down to what we what we've just been talking about and the statement that you just made around the depressive symptoms being related to risk taking. In a nutshell. 
what I found is that when people feel bad about themselves, when they feel distressed, when they feel that they don't really have confidence, they're more likely to engage in behaviors that can put them at risk of HIV and STIs. And let me give you some concrete examples. I've encountered in my interview research people who face sexual racism. They faced racism on the gay scene. Um, these are BAME gay men who face racism from um, white gay men. And uh, they can feel that they, many of them can feel that actually that they're not attractive, that they're just not attractive to other people, that there's something flawed about them, mm. that, they, that their ethnicity is something that is a flaw rather than something to be celebrated and to be proud of. That can lead them to sometimes feel less confident about negotiating the type of sex they're going to have and whether or not they're going to use a condom with a partner who may insist on a particular sexual behavior or insist on not using a condom. And they, they described in interviews, you know, the situation of being told by a partner who they really wanted to have, they wanted to have sex with this person, they felt that th that, that person was doing them a favor by having sex with them because of this internalized stigma. Right. And they resorted to behaviors that they didn't really want to engage in, they didn't really want to have condomless sex, but they actually did that because they didn't have the confidence to negotiate their condom use. So that's one concrete example of how that can happen. But another example, Josh, is that some people just to escape from the trauma that they face, the depression that they face, they go into an environment where a lot of risk taking is occurring. They may decide to use substances, which we know is going to reduce inhibitions in many cases, mm -hmm. where which we know will lead to a situation where people are perhaps not thinking as rationally as they may be thinking if they were not using substances. I think this is really important because I think we have a very um, flat conversation around chemsex. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's, some, there's some incredible work, not to diminish any of the work that's taking place at the moment. David Stewart at 5016th Street is really leading the charge here. Um, but the conversations that I've seen around chemsex have one been, you know, crystal meth and HIV, right? Slings, dark room, like dark, 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 dark. Um, and very little conversation around escapist behaviors for men of color. And so that's why I was electrified reading through your research because I thought, there we go. Because to me, it's made sense, right? I, it's no secret to listeners of the show that I've struggled with drug use before and that I, I'm an escape artist myself, right? I said that in my conversation with Alex Holmes. Um, but that it's, I've not seen it written down to say, hey, yeah, you're experiencing objectification, sexual racism, rejection, uncertainty, you know, and, and you choose to escape in this way. Yeah, I, I, that's so true. I think it's important that we kind of look beneath the bonnet, so to speak, and we try and um, look at the, the reasons, the, the factors that are causing this behavior, that are driving this behavior. I want to just begin by paying tribute to many of the people who've done research into chemsex, which is a very challenging area, mm. but it's a very important area to, to study. I believe that um, many people engage with substances in a way that they can control mm -hmm. and they're able to um, transiently engage in chemsex and they can remove themselves from that environment when it no longer feels comfortable. Mm. But there is a very significant group of people who find that very difficult. And it's that group that I focus on in my research right. because I think it's really important for us to understand why people may be escaping, what they're escaping from, and how we can support them to elect to choose more sustainable, healthier coping strategies. Because in a way, chemsex can be a coping strategy mm. for that individual or that those individuals who feel so rejected, who feel that the only environment where they can really find acceptance, find... Um, a partner who's who's going to share a moment of um, eroticism or passion with them mm. is in the chemsex environment yeah. under the influence of substances. Yes. You know, I think that person can be supported um, to reduce the risk of their, of harm. To you know, to to also broaden their repertoire their, of, of strategies that they use, so that they're not just reliant on one, which may mm. be drugs or chemsex or alcohol or anything else. Is there anything in this report about um, risk taking that surprised you? Because, I mean, this is one of your more recent, yeah, this is one of your more recent um, um, part bits of research. Was there anything that, that surprised you within this? Yes, I think what really surprised me, Josh, was that for a long time, I had this view that if we can communicate with people and we can just give them knowledge, we will be able to solve a lot of the problems in the world. 
And this comes from, I think, a tradition of which we call the knowledge deficit model, this idea that people have a deficit in knowledge. And if you give them knowledge, they're going to behave in ways you want them to behave or in the way in which policymakers want them to behave. And what I found in my research was that the reasons why people were engaging in risk behaviors are so complex. They're really complex and often they continue to engage in risk behaviors even though they know the risks of, say, um, exposure to HIV is quite significant, Mm. it's quite high. And I just want to give you one example of this. Um, I remember interviewing an HIV negative individual who had an HIV positive partner, and this was a gay couple. They were both BAME. Which is quite normal in this scene, right? As yeah. far as I know, these uh, they, that's called zero, zero discordant? Absolutely, yes. And I just want to ex- just, just take a few moments to explain the context, because this is actually really interesting, and it's something I, I had no idea about. Now, this was a couple who had been together for about a year, they were in a very insular relationship. They were, it was insular because they hadn't told anyone else about their relationship. They hadn't told anyone else about that. They hadn't come out as gay to their parents. None of their relatives, very few of their friends knew about their relationship because they didn't want to be out to their ethnic community. Mm-hmm. So in a way, what this created for them was a very insular relationship where they were very reliant on one another and um, they felt very, very close. Now, of course, closeness can be a really great thing. It can be about intimacy, but it can also lead to an over-reliance on just one individual and not really giving your partner the space, the psychological space, the physical space that they may need to also live their life as well. And so they were in this sort of relationship. And the HIV negative uh, person in that relationship talked about taking risks because he felt that by seroconverting, by becoming HIV positive, there would be some advantages. And one of those advantages would be a real sense of intimacy and an extra layer of closeness with his partner. And of course, as HIV prevention specialists, we want to prevent HIV and we want to really try to enhance the lives of those who are living with HIV. Um, And it's really difficult, I think, to intervene in a situation like that, where actually the individual feels that by by, by becoming HIV positive, there will be a real benefit to the relationship. Mm. And this is quite, this just demonstrates how important psychology is there and how by intervening through counseling and psychotherapeutic approaches for both um, individuals, we may be able to create a situation where actually there are other ways of deriving intimacy and closeness. Not everything has to be shared, that it's possible to have some right. aspects of difference yeah. and still have a really healthy, close relationship. And so but did that come about over the course of your, your research? Yes, it did. Which means that you can't intervene, right? No. Or can you? W- well, it, it would be, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not really approaching this um, from the perspective of a, of a therapist. To right. sort of get, it's more about actually gathering information. Okay. Um, but of, of course... Because my natural question was, what do you do in yeah, that situation, yeah. right? And it's when a real dilemma. It's a yeah. real dilemma, Josh. It really is. Because, you know, you, you can't really... I, because I think there are lots of things we've got to pay um attention to both as researchers and as therapists that we can't really i think pressurize people or or let people feel pressurized by the things we say and it's really important not to run the risk of of being judgmental Mm. or coming across Mm. as judgmental because uh, a person can switch off and it's really important to listen to them but I think also if you can organically and naturally during the course of your conversation with that individual, and of course an interview is a conversation, if you can get them to, to, to open up to other ways of thinking and for them to be the leaders in that and for them to really lead on that process, for them to suggest alternatives, that's a great thing. So I want to make sure that we've been clear because um, there's a lot of information here. So let's we'll re, let's review sure. what, we, what, what, what we're learning today i hope that listeners have their pens <laughs> <laughs> but if you, with your permission i'll include these reports in oh, the show notes oh, so please people do. yes can look into them so we so black and minority ethnic lgb people in the uk are experiencing f- discrimination rejection sexual racism which is resulting in um, higher levels of depression than our white lgb counterparts absolutely this then results in um, riskier sexual behaviors like condomless sex, like drug use, yeah. etc. Yes. Yeah. So there are definitely what we would call relationships between these factors. Okay. So, so, so um, uh, we, we've, we, we can say that, that these things are related, but of course, it's not going to be the case 
for everybody. So not everybody sure. who, who faces um, depression will take sexual risks. Um, but certainly what we found is that there is a strong relationship between those things. And a re- is a relationship different to a correlation? Uh, a, the, so a relationship and a correlation are the same thing. Okay. But actually saying that something causes something is a really tricky thing to, to say unequivocally. Right. You know, so I think what we've got, we, we'll need to do more research to be able to understand um, how strong that causality actually is. Okay. But there's very strong indications that they're related. Now, in this, in, in the in the depressive symptomatology report, it says there are no published empirical studies in the UK that focus specifically on mental health outcomes in the BAME LGB population. Yes, I mean, I thought I knew that was true, but to actually read it in your report, I was yeah. stunned by that. Yeah, I think partly because uh, you know this is this is a community that has been seen as really hard to reach. And that I'm is, laughing because I hate that phrase. Yeah, yeah, and it's been seen in those terms. And I know that, um, I mean, we've, we've done this research, and I think if you refine your methods of trying to access people, um, you explain the research in a way that people understand the, re- they, they understand the relevance of this research, I think more people will come forward and they will participate in this research. I think it's also really important to just say, Josh, that you know we don't really even completely understand and there's um, uh, the, the nature of mental health outcomes within um, the, the general population you right. know I think there's a lot of unanswered questions within that population and so I think there's a lot of research going on in that big general population that's led to maybe um, fewer people focusing on some of the smaller groups of people like BAME LGB people but it is really important that we do look at their well-being outcomes as well because as we found in our research they are at higher risk of depression psychological distress and suicide um, ideation certainly my philosophy as a, as, as a healthcare professional is that I think everybody really we need to focus on the health of everybody mm. and every, nobody should be left behind nobody should be invisible or voiceless and so that's what we try to address with this paper so you mentioned earlier that you know this is this isn't just an individual um, biomedical approach, and I, I laughed when you said that earlier because I did some work within sexual health, and I, I understand the biomedical approach is kind of this one size fits all. Take this medicine, you'll be fine. Um, and I laugh because actually it makes sense to have a holistic approach, right? That incorporates socioeconomic disparities, access, transport, technology. Um, do you have any ideas? based on this research, based on your own lived experience, based on your friends, um, of how we might make this better? Mm. First of all, you've just summarized the whole ethos around my research in a single sentence, Josh, (laughs) so thank you for that. It is absolutely all about being very holistic and not just having a a single approach to what are very complex issues like Mm. mental health, sexual health, HIV. I wanna just begin by saying that the biomedical work that our colleagues who are clinicians do, and um, which which is undertaken by a biomedical scientist is extremely important. It's sure. vital. I mean, it's these innovations in biomedical sciences that's led to people now having, um, you know, a, a, a near normal, if not normal, life expectancy when they're living with HIV mm-hmm. and they're diagnosed early. You know, it's these innovations are so amazing and, and marvelous. The point of my work, however, is to show and to try and see why not everyone, um, or or why we haven't completely stopped HIV, even though we have these biomedical tools, why we haven't stopped the epidemic of poor mental health, even though we have these biomedical tools. That is because there are other causal factors. That is because social reasons and psychological reasons are leading people to experience poor outcomes. So my research is about trying to to identify what they may be. And I want to just give you one example of this, Josh. So we have PrEP. Well, when I say we have PrEP, I mean it exists. (laughs) And uh, people are able to access this in in various ways. Some people are able to access this. Many people are now able to access this. We've had condoms for a really long time. We have knowledge. And we have a very effective antiretroviral therapy for treating HIV. We know that when somebody is undetectable, they have an undetectable viral, they cannot pass it on. These are all amazing biomedical innovations. Why is it then, therefore, that there are still people who do get infected with HIV? Well, of course, there are social and there are psychological reasons why people get tested for HIV. Some people don't want to be stigmatized. They feel they will be if they're tested. Some people have a low risk 
appraisal. They think that they're not at high risk or they associate risk with other people. Mm -hmm. They think there are particular behaviors that are um, akin to somebody who is um, later diagnosed with HIV. They have all sorts of erroneous, incorrect views of this kind. Why do some people not start antiretroviral therapy when they're diagnosed with HIV? Well, some people are struggling to accept their HIV diagnosis and therefore they don't want to accept a daily pill, which is mm. the case for many people living with HIV, or they don't want to ex accept a daily medication. Um, why do some people not take PrEP when it's available, when they can actually access this? Um, we found in our research that it can be because of the stigma and, and the notion of what we some people describe as slut shaming, you know, yeah. this idea of... of That's you know, my experience as well. Yeah. The, and this is why I ride or die for the NHS and for Homerton Hospital, mm -hmm. is because it was at the insistence of one of the clinicians there that I get on the Discover trial. Mm -hmm. And she was very persistent. And three times she was like, Josh, you must do this. Yeah. It's really good for you. And I was resistant to it because of what I thought people would think of me taking PrEP. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, you, we just, you just summarized there a really powerful powerful social psychological reason which is which is which might lead someone to then not take prep and therefore um, uh, become infected with HIV mm. so what I'm saying is that we've got to in our prevention approaches we've got to bring together these amazing tools we have in the biomedical sciences like prep like mm. antiretroviral therapy etc and we've got to we've got to use them in a way that's informed by what we know about society and what yes. we know about the way people think. <laughs> if we put those two things together, I think we're going to be much more effective. And similarly, in the context of mental health, I mean, we've talked about quite a few things so far, Josh, but if you look at mental health as well, if we remove the rejection that some people are facing, if we make attitudes much more accepting, and we couple that with other approaches for reducing poor mental health, I think we're going to make some amazing strides in the context of mental health as well. So it's about really people coming together and talking to each other, not being too precious about your area and not thinking that your area is the only way of solving what mm. is a very complex multifaceted issue, but actually working across boundaries. I can't do the job that a biomedical scientist will. I cannot do the job a clinician will, but I can do what a psychologist will do. Mm. And hopefully colleagues in other areas will think in similar ways. And then, so if we take this on an individual level, right, because we have listeners who from across the African continent from across the US, across the UK. You know, let's take, for example, someone who doesn't have access to PrEP or someone who is experiencing rejection. We've said today that rejection can lead to um, risk-taking behaviors. What can we be doing as individuals? Understanding that you know, there, are, there is an entire machine of oppression operating around us. But as a psychologist, what are some steps that we can be taking to, to look after ourselves? one of the most important steps that we can take is to try to derive social support. And social support can be a very simple thing like having a sympathetic other with whom to exchange confidences, mm. someone that you can actually share your life with. Uh, and, and I mean that in, in, in terms of actually describing events in your life, you know, having a trusted friend. Um, that's really important. There are some people, many people actually, people I've interviewed who haven't disclosed their sexual identity to anyone around them other than maybe their doctor or um, someone with whom they may find it difficult to exchange confidences. And that's not an ideal situation. So I think deriving any form of social support is a step in the right direction for the individual. I also believe that some people find it easier to advocate for change than others. And what I mean by that is there are some people, some of us will become activists and they will find they will really find that very inspiring as um, a, an activity to undertake. They will be very successful in that line of work. They will also very successfully influence others because they have the skills to do that. Mm. And I think it's really important that those people persevere and that we around, we in the environment also support those individuals to advocate. It's not something that everyone can do. No. I personally don't think I'm a great activist. I, I don't think I would be. I'm, I'm probably too shy to be an activist. <laughs> but there are people who are really effective in that. And they can really contribute to what each and every one of us will be doing on an individual level when we share an aspect of our life with someone else. And if we all do that, if we all do what we're good at, I think we can really promote some amazing change. There will be some people who are able to, who will be in positions of power, like pe political figures, who are part of our community. And our, I mean our community in the broadest sense possible because we're a very diverse community. 
we must engage them. And they must also engage with the issues that really matter to the communities that they're also a part of. So I think every individual has a role to play. No role is too small. It can seem small to the outside observer. Sharing a problem can seem like a small thing to do, but you're doing a great thing Mm. because you're actually potentially educating someone else, informing someone else. You're exposing yourself to more information because someone else can share an aspect of their life with you. Mm. We learn something new every day, they say, and that's absolutely true. (laughs) I certainly do. And um, we can advocate a lot of change through that, Josh. Yeah, I feel that for sure. And I think there's... I think there's an honest, I don't like the word authentic because I think authentic is so subjective, right? Like a black guy walking down the hood, walking down the street with his hood up is being his authentic self, but yeah. presents a danger potentially to someone else, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this kind of, this word authentic is a bit, it's a bit, a bit too loose yeah, for me. It's problematic. Yeah. yeah, but I love honest, right? That there are, when I started being honest with myself and even just with myself, right, with, before talking to other people about what I was discovering about myself, th- things start to, started to change. And I'm certainly a work in progress, right? I think we all are. But I think that's a key part of it is that honesty can also seem like a, almost like a bad word, right? Because the opposite of honesty is deceit. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's part of it, right? This, this, this speaking up and sharing a problem yeah. is, is being honest that we have a problem in the first place. Yes. Or that we're struggling with something. Or Yes, yes. And I really like your phrase, this, uh, this notion of being a work in progress, because I think we absolutely all are. Mm. We all have aspects of our identity that cause us an element of distress or that we haven't yet... Um, come to terms with or that we haven't been able to share with other people or that we're afraid you know we're afraid how people will react to them and that's something that's true of everyone even the most confident person or seemingly most confident person will have an element of this and you're absolutely right that when we share this with someone else we show an element of vulnerability Mm. which is a good thing it is Brene Brown yeah (laughs) it's a really good thing I think it's also really good because I certainly know that I would find it really intimidating to share things that make me vulnerable with someone that I perceive to be really perfect, to be completely flawless, to be completely secure in who they are. I would, I would feel I can't really share this with them. And actually what we want to do, just to come back to a point that we've made several times in our discussion, if we really want to create a situation where social support is possible, we are going to have to be willing to be a little bit vulnerable mm. and to tell people that we're not perfect because nobody is. No. We're all a work in progress. <laughs> I can't believe we're almost out of time. Neither can I. But we are. <laughs> so I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? I hope for many things. But what I really hope for in the short term is that we will see um, many people embracing diversity because there are many people across all the political spectrum across all groups in society who in one way or the other do not really embrace diversity. Mm. Diversity in every guise. It's really important that they do. The only way they can do this, Josh, is by recognizing that all forms of prejudice are unacceptable. Not just prejudice against your own group. Because Mm. if you condone an environment where prejudice of any kind is acceptable, today it's one group, tomorrow it could be your own group. It's important that we all understand that. It's important we all come together against prejudice and in favor of inclusion. Lucy, thank you so much for being here. This has been such an edifying and beautiful conversation. Thank you, I'm really grateful for you being here. Thank you so much, Josh, for the invitation. It's been wonderful to speak to you. Professor Rusi Jaspel is the professor of psychology at the School of Social Sciences at Nottingham Trent University. You can find links to his work in the show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to the great pop culture debate back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.